Well, do me a favor and get a Bible and get with me to Numbers chapter 1. So it's right at the front end of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We're starting a new series called Lessons from the Wilderness, and it'll be a study through the book of Numbers, and I was telling my wife about this recently, and she said, really? Uh, Numbers is a book that people skip over. And I said, yeah, exactly. Um, So I've got an uphill battle here, so let me go ahead and uh, pray, and then I'll give you some commitments that I have, some reasoning, some psychology behind why we would even do a, a series in the book of Numbers. But let's pray first. Lord, we're asking for your hand of help in this moment. We're asking that you, Lord, would speak. We pray, God, that you would use this time in your word to shape and mold your people. We pray, God, that we would express obedience and faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Numbers, I don't like them. Uh, Not the book itself, but the actual numbers. I was okay with numbers until, well, freshman year of college. I had a, a year where I had satisfied the requirements to graduate high school, and I didn't have to do math. And so I was like, I'm pretty good at this thing. And then I had to do the placement test, and they said, actually, you need to do a bunch of remedial courses that aren't gonna count for anything, but just to get you back up to the level you need to be at. And so numbers and I, uh, we don't always get along. Uh, But this book is not just about numbers. It's called numbers because twice within the book, they count the people. They count all the individuals who are part of that first generation at the front end, and then they end up at the back end of the book taking a second count or census. But let me then share with you some commitments that I have that have led me to decide that it would be a good idea to preach from the book of Numbers. First off, I have a love for the Old Testament, and I have a commitment to preach and teach from it. Uh, This actually came from a course that I took. Well, I didn't technically take it. I was between classes, but I was so excited that I audited a course. I didn't have the money to pay for it, so I just said, "I'm I'm gonna do the coursework, and then when money comes available, I'll do that course. Well, they phased it out. And I was so upset because it was such an awesome course. It was called The Christian and the Old Testament. I was so upset that they were phasing it out that I actually reached out to the accrediting agency of the institution and I said, you guys need to look at this again. Like, I want to take this course for credit. And they said, no way, dude. Who who are you, some random kid (laughs) emailing us? But anyways, there's a course by Walt Kaiser and it was called The Christian and the Old Testament. And in it, he shared a lot of the things that just resonated with my heart. God did not spend almost 75% of his communication to people saying something that he thinks is irrelevant. Christians are a people who should be able to go to the Old Testament and find things there for us. I was so impressed by that course that I actually went and met the dude, Walt Kaiser, at his farm in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, just to shake his hand and say thank you. But I have a love for the Old Testament. I feel called to preach and teach from it. I feel called to help other people come to know and understand their Bibles, including the first portion of it. Well, the second commitment that I have is way more important than the first. The second commitment that I have is that the Bible, including the book of Numbers, is all about Christ. We go to the book of Numbers to find him there. We go to any place in the Bible and we find Christ. We find things about him that are intended to increase our faith in him. 
So let me show it to you from Luke chapter 24. This is right after the events of the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord himself. His disciples were bewildered by the experience and they were trying to sort everything out. They had watched their their master get executed and they were trying to piece it all together. What's gonna happen next? What are we doing? What, What does all of this mean? And so they're walking on a road to Emmaus and the Lord, Jesus Christ, in resurrected form, shows up. But they don't recognize him. For whatever reason, in his resurrected bodily form, they don't realize who it is that's walking beside them. And they're talking about the events that just took place. That Jesus of Nazareth was executed and that he was placed in a tomb and that his body went missing and all these different things. They're trying to sort through it. And then Jesus scolds them. He says, you dummies, right? That's a bad day. If your master looks at you and says, you have missed this whole thing. How foolish you are. Let me show it to you on the screens here. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. He's saying everyone that has communi- everyone that's been a mouthpiece for God has said this. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter glory? He's saying you guys should know better. Haven't you read your Bible? The prophets, the communicators for God have spoken and they have this consistent message that the Messiah would suffer before entering glory. Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Here's the lesson of that day. They're walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus shows up and he says, guys, there's a way to read this thing. There's a way to read the book of Numbers, Jesus would say, where I show up. There's a way to read the book of Numbers where you see that these scriptures testify to me. These scriptures concern me. So we're looking at Numbers to find Christ. I'll show you some different ways to do that along the way, but the Bible is designed to help us better appreciate and worship our Savior. And I would even put it negatively like this. If you don't read your Old Testament, you're missing an awful lot about him. You're you're going to be, there's going to be some deficiencies in your understanding of what he has come to be and do for us. A third commitment commitment that I have about this is that the experience of the Israelites there is meant to be a learning lesson for us. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The Apostle Paul speaking to a group, was speaking to a church, he was recounting the events of the Israelites from the time like Numbers and Exodus and those historical events. And he's describing all the things that they went through and all the failures that they expressed during that season. And he comes to the conclusion, in fact, I'll read it to you, you can watch on the screens as well. They all ate the same spiritual food. He's talking about the Israelites that we're gonna look at. They all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Now, at some point in this series, we're going to have to sit there for a minute. But then he says, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred. Everything that we're going to look at together in Numbers, he's saying, these things occurred as examples to keep us. Making it contemporary now, he's saying, look, Those things that happened back then, they're not just historical events. They're not just fun to look at and consider and study. He says, that's for you. That's for us. These are examples for us to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. 
So here's the commitment that I have. These passages that we're going to look at together are designed to help us evaluate the failures that the Israelites had and our own similarities to them and to learn from those experiences so that we would be better positioned to love and serve our Lord. Well, one final commitment before we look at the actual text in front of us. The final commitment that I have here is that the wilderness theme becomes a paradigm for the Christian experience. In the New Testament, the wilderness experience of the Israelites walking through this desert wasteland together with God in his presence, it becomes this paradigm that is used to describe the Christian experience. We just saw it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul writes to a group of people who live in a metropolis. They live in a city. And he's saying the wilderness experience is for us. So he's using it as a paradigm to help us learn about what it looks like to be a faithful follower of God. The writer to Hebrews does the same thing in Hebrews chapter 3. He takes the wilderness experience and he says, that stuff that happened back then, that's for us today. That experience that they had, that failure to enter into the rest that was offered to them, that time of wilderness is for us. So we're stepping into the book of Numbers to grow in our appreciation for our Savior. And we're stepping into the book of Numbers to learn from the negative example of the unfaithful Israelites. And we're stepping into the book of Numbers with the anticipation that God is going to help us better understand what we're going through today in our wilderness experience. So welcome to the wilderness. What we find is a people and their holy God. We find a people and their holy God. So let's take those one at a time. Let's look at what this teaches us about God, and then we'll look at what it teaches us about ourselves. First off, what you notice is that God communicates. Look at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting. God is a God who communicates to people. He does not stand far off. He does not kind of wind this thing up, create, you know, creation itself, wind it up and just say, let's see how this plays out. No, he is intimately involved in his creation. And one of the things that he is committed to doing is communicating to people. He's a God that wants to speak to us. He's given us his word. We have his voice. We, we of all people should be concerned that we could hear his voice, that we would open the scriptures when we gather together for church, that we would open the Bible and we would say, what does God have to say for us today? And then we go away from here and we continue that, that habit of opening the scriptures daily. We open the scriptures and we say, what does God want to speak to me today? Because I need to hear from him and hear something about him. He wants to communicate. He has something to say. So I'm going to create some space in my life to, to listen to his voice. I'm going to open his word and I'm going to be attentive to him because he speaks to his people. Second thing that we find out about God is that he's a God who saves. In fact, in the last part of verse 1, it gives us this little reference point. It says that this happened after the Israelites came out of Egypt. After the Israelites came out of Egypt. It's telling us that this is happening, that God is speaking, he's giving instructions, but then a reference comes up. This is after the Israelites came out of Egypt. But that's a pretty freighted saying. How did the Israelites come out of Egypt? Well, if you know the story, they were in bondage and slavery, and they were crying out to God because they were oppressed. And God raised up a deliverer in Moses 
And then through Moses, God, God used him to rescue his people from that situation. There were 10 plagues. There was a final plague of judgment, and he spared the people, and the Israelites were able to come out of Egypt, and then they get put, uh, you know, between the army pursuing them and the Red Sea, and God opens that up. He says, just wait on me and watch. And they're able to walk through on dry ground, and God saved them from those circumstances, and he was rescuing them and redeeming them. And so what we find is that we have a God who saves we have a God who looks at a people and he says, I'm going to do what is in your very best interest. I'm going to do something that you could never do for yourself. I'm going to save you. That's the kind of God that we're dealing with. And we'll talk about that Christian message of salvation as we come to it. But God is the God who saves. We look at him as Savior God. We also find that God is a God who cares. Look at verse 2. Take a census or count Take a census of the whole Israelite community by their clans and families, listing every man by name, one by one. I don't remember where I heard this from, but it has stuck with me for a lot of years. Somebody has once wisely said, God counts by ones. And the idea there is that God cares about individuals. He cares about his people, obviously, collectively. But he also cares about individuals. He cares about every single person. List them by their name, one by one. In a moment like this, it can feel like God is, maybe you feel like you're overlooked. Maybe you feel like you're insignificant and nobody is taking note of you and maybe it even feels like God is absent from you, but this reminds us that God cares on that personal and intimate level. He knows you. The New Testament would describe it like this. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He cares about other things that are even less significant than you. So how much more does he care for you? He knows you. He looks after you. He's thinking about you. You're on his mind. You're on his heart. And he cares for you. Another thing that we learn about God here is that he's both present, but he's holy. God is present with his people and he's committed to his uh, presence within their camp, but there's a problem with that, and that is the question that actually will become a major theme in the book. How does a holy God live amongst an unholy people? How can unholy people draw close to God when God is perfect and they're not? And so we find out about this when we get to the part of the accounting where the Levites show up. So everyone's being named, everyone's being counted, all the different tribes are being accounted for, all the individuals within those tribes are being named and counted one by one, and then we get to the Levites in verse 47, and it says they are not to be counted, because this particular group has a special responsibility. There is a group called the Levites, and they are mediators of God's presence. They are a people who take the, it's called the tabernacle here, but the tent of the meeting of God, and they set it up, and they tear it down, and they transport it. They're responsible for all the activities around and within it. They are the people who are making the sacrifices of atonement so that God could be related to in that way for unholy people. And so we're given a place and a people and a process for God's presence to be there. And that's with the Levites. And that reminds us then, and it'll show up over and over again, that God is 
is with us, but he is holy. He's with us, but he's different. You, you don't presume upon, upon the presence of God. He is so holy, in fact, that, we, that he's unapproachable in normal terms. Look with me at verse 51. This is one verse to help you wrap your mind around this. It says, whenever the tabernacle is to move, the Levites are to take it down. And whenever the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall do it. Anyone else who approaches it is to be put to death. That's how serious God's presence is. His holiness, and I think, you know, sometimes we, we, we've lost this category of God's holiness. Um, for me personally, I was captivated by it, by R.C. Sproul and his book, Holiness, and some of the teaching that he had done on this topic. But the holiness of God, it is something that, that we should be aware of. God, God is holy. So how on earth are we supposed to come near to him? Well, the Levites, in this case, are a part of that process. They're mediating God's presence to the people. But here's what's really cool. You keep reading the Bible, you keep making your way forward, you find something out you and I can actually come into the presence of God. You and I can come into the presence of a holy God and not die, which is surprising if you read the Bible. But here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. It says, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. We can march right into that tent of meeting, that tabernacle, that place that was restricted that only the Levites could go into, and we have that that access into that spiritual reality, here's, here's how, by the blood of Jesus Christ. We, church family, have access to the holy God. We can come into his presence without fear, not because we're so great, but because he has made a way. By the blood of Jesus Christ, we can draw near to a holy God. So we learn about God by looking at Numbers chapter 1, but we also learn about us. There are some things that we find out about humanity here. First off, we learn that people need to hear God's voice. God communicates, but we actually need to listen. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting, but then that message was relayed to the rest of the community. The community needed, needed to hear from God. You see, we are interpreters of the world. Paul Tripp, uh, an author, a pastor, a counselor, he talks about this. He talks about the fact that humanity are, we're interpreters of the world. Meaning what we try to do is we try to take all the information in front of us and we try to make sense of it. But we need help with that. And that's the way that we were designed. In fact, even in the garden, when Adam and Eve were there, they needed the voice of God. God had to tell them, here's what you're to do here. Eat freely from any tree in the garden. Stay away from this one tree. Here's what you're to do. You know, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And God is speaking and people need that. You and I need the voice of God. We're interpreters of the world. But we also find out very quickly there's another voice. Even in the garden, there's a voice of a serpent. Did God really say that? Is that really what God is like? Don't you, don't you question his integrity? Don't you question that his voice is the appropriate way to handle this world? You see, we need to hear from God because we're trying to interpret this world that we live in. And unfortunately, we're pretty poor at doing that. As a pastor, I would say most of us have been formed by other voices nowadays. We, we listen to voices that try to help us explain the world in which we live, but we listen to social media, 
or we listen to media outlets, and we listen to even famous Christian speakers and authors, and we listen to all these different people, and they're trying to interpret the world that we live in, and what we most desperately need is not another voice telling us what we want to hear. We need the voice of God. We're, we're desperate to understand what God is up to, and He's eager to tell us. God speaks, and we need to listen. So what habits do you have in your life to listen to the voice of God? Could you be more like the Bereans and the book of Acts, who every time you hear anything, you just go back to the Bible and you say, can I find it here? Did God really say that? Do you have a habit of getting into the Word so that you have a consistent routine where God is speaking to you through His Word? God speaks, and we, we need to listen. We also find out that we're a people in the wilderness. In fact, one of the other titles for the book of Numbers one of the Hebrew names for it comes from, from verse 1, and it's the name wilderness. What, what we have in the NIV here in verse 1, it says they were in the desert of Sinai. But the word there that's translated in NIV desert is the word that could be translated or is translated in a lot of cases as wilderness. People go through the wilderness. And not just literally like they did, but we go through these seasons where it is bewildering, where we, we go through this season where it's dry and barren and hostile. We go through these experiences where it's hard and difficult. And, and I think God does this on purpose or does it with intentionality. I'd never heard this before, but I, I learned it this week. Sometimes shepherds will take their sheep into the wilderness to train them. We have a little puppy at home named Winnie. I am a failure at training her. I am, I'm looking for anything that will help me potty train her and help her to be a good dog. But shepherds would take their flock into the wilderness and they would do it to help train the flock because there are certain things that can be learned in the wilderness that can't be learned anywhere else. First off, sheep will learn very quickly the importance of remaining with the flock. If it is a dangerous environment and you were, you were designed to be in community, it would be very foolhardy for you to leave that community to go elsewhere on your own in isolation. Sheep will learn that lesson very quickly. Another lesson that they learn is to hear the shepherd's voice. The sheep learn very quickly to discern the shepherd's voice because in the desert wilderness, they need to know what is he calling us to do? Where do we need to be? What do we need to be up to? And they're listening to his voice very intently. I think it's appropriate that the Lord himself said, I am the good shepherd and the sheep know my voice. We are a people who go through seasons of desert wilderness and God is teaching us something. And one of the things we learn is we learn to listen intently to the voice of the Lord. And I think in those moments of desperation, we're eager for him to speak. We're desperate for for him to communicate to us and we're praying and we're seeking him out and he's speaking to us. But we also learn, we also learn to look to him for provision. When you're in the desert wilderness and you've got a good shepherd, he's the only one that can lead you faithfully through that environment. So we, humanity, you and I, we go through these seasons in the wilderness and God is teaching us something. Timothy Laniac is an author who has done a lot of work on shepherding, and he actually went 
to the Middle East and spent, I, I'm not sure the amount of time, but he spent a significant amount of time with literal shepherds, learning what it was like. And he's written about um, shepherding in regard to church leadership and other things. But he says this, he says, the wilderness is where God revealed himself repeatedly as provider, protector, and guide. We go through these seasons, and we can say right now is one of those seasons. Globally, it's one of those seasons where it is a wilderness. And we don't know what's going on, but God is leading us in this moment, helping us to understand that he is our provider, he's our protector, and he's our guide. And so we stick close to him. We also realize that we are following him in the wilderness as people who have not yet arrived. We're, we're a pilgrim people. Just like the Israelites were then, they had left Egypt, but they had not arrived yet in Canaan in the promised land. They were between these locations, and they were traveling then with God as these pilgrim people. And when we're doing that, we're, we're, we're recognizing what we have already, but we're anticipating what's to come. So Ian DeGood, he writes like this in his commentary, the story of the book of Numbers is written to a people whose lives are lived between the accomplishing of their redemption and its consummation. The, the book of Numbers, he's saying, is this experience of life lived between when they were brought out of Egypt, but before they go into the promised land. It's between exodus and promise. And then he says, we, we live as they did between our salvation accomplished and our salvation completed. We Christians, we live between what Christ has done and that moment that we decided to follow him and that moment we decided to surrender him and that salvation that he worked for us and we live between that and the day when that salvation is complete. We're living in this interim period, in this time between. And he goes on to say, what is more, our experience in this world is likewise one of wilderness rather than fullness. We're going through a season where we are learning what it is like to embrace our salvation. We're anticipating what's to come, but we're living in a hostile environment in the meantime. We're having to draw on the salvation that we've experienced on the front end of our saving faith, but we're looking forward to the fullness. And in the meantime, we're trying to learn how do we live by faith in the wilderness? Well, a few more things we need to recognize. We're vulnerable in the wilderness. Verse 3, you and Aaron, Moses, you and Aaron are to count according to their divisions all the men in Israel who are 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army. You're going through a hostile environment. environment. There are people who will oppose you. You do not have safety here. You're vulnerable. You're weak. You don't have a city of refuge. You don't have a place that's fortified. You don't have a place that you can retreat to. You are on the move, and if another army comes against you, what hope do you think you have when you're in your tent? All right, we used to, my family and I, we used to uh, tent camp up in Canada. That was our, that was our vacation. Uh, but we would portage, you know, we would canoe around lakes, and then we would set up, and we would fish and do all these different things. But when you're in a tent, and you're thinking about, you, you hear a moose marching through the wilderness, and you think, this thing could just trample us. Or you think about the bears that are out there, and you're like, we're in a tent, and this little piece of fabric is going to do no good if something comes our way. Well, that's like the people of God in this situation. They are traveling, and they are living in tents, 
and they have to account for their army because they're vulnerable. Figure out who is 20 years old or more and able to serve in the army. Now, here's what this means. Here's how this applies to us today. We are still very vulnerable. And if you think you're not, you're, I would say it's pretty foolish how you're approaching life. In fact, I would say it like this. The, the Bible seems to present this idea of weakness as advantage. That if you're a Christian, you learn to embrace the weakness that you have. You learn to embrace the necessity that you have for dependence upon God. You learn to just own that. You say, look, I, I know that within myself, I don't have what I need, but I'm relying on God and that's okay. That's more than okay. But we are a people who are vulnerable, just like they were. We're also a people who need to be organized. Verses four and five, it says, one man from each tribe, each of them, the head of his family, is to help you. These are the names of the men who are to assist you. It, it, it really outlines, that's just a sample, but it outlines this organizational structure for the people to thrive. In other words, there is going to have to be a system and there's going to have to be some management of that system, and we're going to have to relate to each other in a particular way. Now, I bring this up because I'm realizing how opposed we are to that as Americans. We're individuals. We're expressive. Those are all cultural narratives that we embrace. We, want, we just want to be on our own. We want to do things organically. But the Bible reminds us, and especially here, that for the people to thrive, there has to be some sort of organization. They're heads of households, they're in charge of tribes and families within that tribe. They're to assist you. Then it goes on to describe all the different organizations. The Levites are supposed to camp here, and then, you know, there are concentric circles of where everyone else is supposed to camp, but you can't just do it your own way. There's this need for organization, and we still need that today. For the people of God to thrive, there has to be some level of organization to help us relate to each other, to help us know what to expect to help us know where we're at in the grand scheme of things. Well, finally, we learn that we are a people who need to listen to God, not just hear from him, but commit to obey him. And so at the very end of, verse, of uh, chapter 1 in verse 54, we find this, this little saying here. It says, The Israelites did all this just as the Lord commanded Moses. And you might think, wow, we're off to a great start then. These are people who are going to listen to God. And we might look at us as a church and say, we're a people who are committed to listening to God. We're off to a great start here. The problem is, if you keep reading, that didn't last very long. In fact, it didn't last very long. That generation died in the desert wilderness because they, they repeatedly rejected the voice of God. When it came to organization, they didn't like that. When it came to matters of leadership, they didn't like that. When it came to the provisions that God was giving to them, they didn't like those. And so over and over again, they reject God's leadership and his presence in the wilderness, and they fall in the desert wilderness. And I bring this up just to draw a, a close to the sermon and a connection to the good news of the gospel. They failed, much like we fail. They struggle, much like we struggle. We can write ourselves into this story because it is a very familiar story. We have all kinds of good intentions of obeying God, of listening to his voice, of, of following his leadership. But when you're in the desert wilderness and it's hard and it's not going your way and you're not getting your preferences met and you begin to resent things and you begin to complain and grumble and argue, it's very familiar. 
But here's the good news of the gospel. Israelite, Israel failed, but Jesus did not. They failed, but the Lord did not. In fact, it's very fascinating if you read Luke chapter 4, as it's describing the inauguration of the ministry of Jesus Christ, he fasted and prayed for 40 days. And then, and then, um, he was led into the wilderness. Let me show it to you. This is Luke 4, verse 1 and 2. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Here's what's incredible about that. Where Israel goes into the desert wilderness and they fail, Jesus goes into that same desert wilderness and succeeds. Where they were unable to uphold their end of the bargain of saying, we're going to listen to his voice, we're going to do everything he instructs us to do, they get there and they say, no, 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 we change our mind. And Jesus says, I will go into that desert wilderness and I will do everything that you guys have failed to do and I'll gift that to you. That's the good news of the gospel that we will fail, but the Lord won't. He is the one who is perfectly obedient on our behalf and he gifts that obedience to us. It is called the righteousness that we receive by faith. He gives us the righteousness that we need that he earned. And that is the good news of the gospel. The book of Numbers helps us to understand we need the Lord. We're going to walk through the wilderness and we will fail, but he will not. We're going to walk through the wilderness and we're going to recognize we're dealing with a holy God and we can't come into his presence except for the blood of Jesus Christ. We're able then to draw near to God in the desert wilderness and he will lead us and he will help us and we will then come safely home to him. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would help us in this moment to appreciate our Lord and Savior. God, we acknowledge the desert wilderness and all of the struggles that we go through in this life. And we're grateful for the things that we're learning along the way. But more than anything else, we're grateful for our Lord and Savior who did that perfectly for us. We're grateful for the salvation that we have in him. We're grateful for the way that he has made a way for us to be in relationship with you in your presence. Help us, Lord, to walk by faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.